Now, as we move from the first proposition to the second one, from a living and immutable divine person who assumes a true humanity into union with himself, we come secondly now to the personalizing character of the hypostatic union. And this is where the hypostatic union, this relation of the divine person to assumed humanity, differs from the creator-creature relation. In the hypostatic union, the divine person of the Logos personalizes the assumed humanity. Voss is quite helpful here. In his Reformed Dogmatics, question 26, what follows from this union for the human nature of the mediator? Answer, that it may not at the same time be called a human person. After all, if it were a human person, then along with the divine person, there would be a second person in Christ, and we would have two mediators instead of one. Nestorianism would be introduced. And then he goes on down toward the bottom of this quote to say, were there now in Christ's human nature a personal feature, it never would have been able to be joined with the deity of the Lord as one subject, such as was absolutely necessary for the execution of the work of the mediator. Now, here's the key quote. This is one of the reasons why personality may not be ascribed to the human nature of the mediator. End of quote. Now, what Voss is saying here is that we have to conceive of the humanity of Jesus n-hypostatically. His humanity exists only in union with the divine person. Jesus' humanity is not an independent human person. His humanity in and of itself, has no personality. Why? Because it never exists apart from union to his divine person. It is an hypostatic humanity. And Voss says, this is absolutely necessary in order to avoid the heresy of Nestorianism. Jesus' humanity is personalized in union with the divine Logos. So, the precise character of this relationship is that the humanity is impersonal. It's an impersonal union. In union with the divine person, Jesus' humanity is personalized. And Voss raises a question that I think it's important for us to think through. Does that mean that Jesus' humanity is I am personal, impersonal? No. Voss asked the question, is it permissible to say that the human nature of the mediator was impersonal? And I'm going to give you a somewhat longer quote here, and then I'll expound it. But the answer in brief is no. For doing that would create the appearance that something were lacking in the human nature of the Lord, and in a questionable manner would incline toward docetism, as if in Christ there was only an apparent and not true humanity. And he says, subsequently then, the best teachers in the church have always avoided the expression impersonal human nature, and rather taught that the 
humanity of the hum, of the mediator has its personal existence in the person of the Son of God, where it is not an abstraction, but is provided with personality. And he goes on to say then that the human nature of the mediator is not properly or inherently impersonal, I am personal, but rather impersonal. It's a personalizing union that makes the humanity in personal. I in personal. Personal in a concrete union with the second person of the Trinity. The technical term that designates this personal union or personalizing union we have on the board here is an hypostatic humanity. Let me put it this way. Only Jesus Christ has an hypostatic humanity. The humanity has no inherent personality simpliciter. In that sense, it's on hypostatic. Yet it never exists for a second apart from or outside of the personalizing union with the person of the Son of God. So the humanity of Jesus is not only um, assumed into unity with the divine Logos, but personalized by that union. You need to reflect on this for a moment because this right here, this second uh, little proposition, personalizing union, impersonal, in-hypostatic humanity, this is what makes it impossible to apply the logic of the incarnation to anything other than Jesus' assumption of his true body and reasonable soul into a personalizing union with the Lagos. Only in the incarnation is such a unique and unrepeatable personalizing union obtained. It is impossible to apply the logic of the incarnation to God's relation to creation, either in the decree or in the work of creation. Why? Well, think through this with me. In neither the eternal decree nor in the work of creation does a Trinitarian person personalize what he relates to. That is entirely absent in the eternal decree and in the work of creation. There is no, listen, there is no personalizing union between the creator and the creature before the fall. There is no unhypostatic matter that God assumes to himself and personalizes in the work of creation. In fact, if you truly applied the logic of the hypostatic union to the work of creation, and you said that a living and immutable divine person takes to himself and personalizes what he relates to, you would have a cosmic incarnation that personalizes the entire created order? Or you would have a species of pantheism by which all things related to God are personalized in a union with 
the Son of God. But these are clearly things that have to be rejected. And let me say this as a side note, just to clarify this. There are some of a more recent vintage in the 21st century who say that when God created the world, he took to himself created properties and threw them related to creation. Let me tell you this, that's not the logic of incarnation. The logic of incarnation is not a bear taking properties to self in order to relate to creation. The precise, the specific, the actual concrete character of that relation is not a taking of properties to, its, to, to, to God, but a personalizing of a human nature in relation to and in a union with the divine person of the Logos. Let me make one last clarifying comment along these lines and connect it to personal immutability. Why was it necessary, Voss says, RD 3, 47 and 48, why was it necessary that the mediator be only one person or that in him a human nature in itself did not possess personality for the following reasons? Because already in the Logos was a divine person who could not change. And so his humanity had to be impersonal or there would have been two subjects in existence. Only because the divine person is the subject in Christ does his mediatorial work obtain the stability required by an eternal and immutable covenant of grace. Without doubt, the human nature of Christ was itself weak and mutable. We now know, however, and please hear this, this is quite beautiful. We now know, however, that this human nature in itself is an abstraction that did not exist for a moment without personal subsistence in the Logos. Thus, the person of the Logos, with its personality, provides his human nature with the steadfastness and immutability by which the covenant of grace is distinguished from the first covenant, the covenant of works. The oneness and the deity of the person are of importance for the affirmation that Christ could not sin. Now let me just focus this for a moment. Voss says first that the eternal person of the Son of God provides the immutable ground for personalizing the assumed humanity. It's a point we've already made. The humanity of Jesus is impersonal by virtue of the assumption. But please pay careful attention to this point. The action of personalizing the assumed humanity of Jesus is performed by the immutable and living person of the Son of God. So, in this personalizing union, the, the assumed humanity is personalized at every point by the person of the Logos. At the foundation of the hypostatic union, we discover an act of an immutable Trinitarian person whose activity at every point 
permanently personalizes the assumed humanity in an unbreachable union. But equally critical, Voss tells us that this immutable person who cannot be changed or eradicated in the event of the incarnation is the reason why that humanity itself remains steadfast. To put it very basically, as basically as I know how, the initiation, continuation, and permanency of the hypostatic union owes itself to the ongoing act of the immutable person of the Son of God. As the divine person personalizes, the assumed humanity is personalized. We understand the attribution of uh, the, the sustenance of that humanity in relation to the immutable person who assumes it. But secondly, and this is very uh, refreshing, Voss reasons that the person of the Logos, with its personality, provides his human nature with the steadfastness and immutability by which the covenant of grace is distinguished from the first covenant, the covenant of works. And it grounds the impeccability of Christ. You see, the reason why Jesus could not sin in terms of ultimate ontological considerations beyond the question of pneumatology, beyond the gifting of the Spirit to his humanity, the ultimate ground for the impeccability of Christ is that he is a divine and immutable Trinitarian person. But in addition to that, and something that's not often brought out, Voss says that the deepest function of his personal immutability rests in the way that that second person of the Godhead confers upon his assumed humanity the steadfast and steadfastness and immutability to discharge the duties as mediator in the covenant of grace. The reason why the covenant of grace abides forever, according to Voss, finds its rationale in the way that the person of the Logos not only personalizes the assumed humanity, but supplies it with an unwavering and impeccable sinlessness in the discharging of all duties as the mediator of the covenant of grace. It is in that way that this immutable personhood and inhypostatic humanity underwrites a better covenant, a covenant of grace that reaches its climax in the new covenant. So, you have to remember this. The importance of the immutability of the divine person of the Logos is at least twofold. It underwrites his impeccable sinlessness, and it underwrites the immutable character and steadfastness of the covenant of grace. If you deny personal immutability, 
You have no Christological ground for the impeccability of the mediator and no foundation for the immutable and irrevocable character of the covenant of grace. All of this, you see, flows from immutable personhood. Do you see how important it is? Leads to a third uh, proposition. The personalizing union is an unconfounded union or a union that does not confound the natures. An unconfounded union that, that underscores at every point there is no commingling of the eternal and the temporal. Voss, one more time, says this, that in Christ the mediator there occurs the unique appearance of one and the same person who at the same time exists, and this is the key, in two completely different natures. You hear that? One person, one personalizing union, two completely different natures. And so, on the one side, you have an immutable Trinitarian person. On the other side, two completely different natures. And that pinpoints the mystery of the hypostatic union. Just as we affirm a bona fide personalizing union, so we affirm two completely different natures in that union. The divine nature is not modified in the union. The human nature is not elevated or deified in the union. The divine nature remains divine without change. The human nature remains human without change in the bond of the union. That is the locus of the mystery properly conceived. And so Voss says, uh, according to his deity, the person of the mediator is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. But according to his humanity, this very same person of the mediator is limited in knowledge and power and circumstance and circumscribed by space. The deity has not ceased to be deity and is not in the least altered or changed by the incarnation except insofar as through the person it has entered into a new relationship, nor is the true humanity elevated on the supposition of the eternity of the person, except insofar as it has entered into a new and entirely unique relation. And listen to this quote. The two spheres in which the one person of the mediator moves lie next to each other, or rather, the one lies above the other but they do not merge together. Their unity lies solely in the person. So as the immutable person of the Logos personalizes the assumed humanity, the deity remains unchanged and possesses all of the divine attributes, the humanity remains unchanged and possesses all of the human attributes. The unity of the person and the distinction of the natures must be equally and at every point affirmed as mutually qualifying truths about the mediator. According to his deity, the person is immutable. According to humanity, the person is mutable. According to the nature. So, what do we say? We say the immutable person of the Logos initiates and sustains the personality of the assumed humanity 
and we maintain the personal union, all that it entails. We maintain the distinction of natures and all that it entails. And we maintain both at the same time, the one never without the other. Now, one last comment here to push this mystery as far as we can. And as we do so, I want you to remember, as we're talking about this uh, final point here about immutable personhood, the precise locus of this hypostatic union remains unspeakable. We're affirming truths about the integrity of the union, truths about the distinction of the nature, but never assuming that we have penetrated the mystery to its core. We cannot as creatures. But Voss says this as he explicates the unity of the person and the distinction of natures. He says the person works through, in, and behind the fully human nature of the mediator. The unity of the person is not merely verbal, but answers to a reality. The human nature, though it has self-consciousness and will and feeling, does not operate of itself, but is at every moment the instrument of the person who bears it. It does not have sub it does not, pardon me, it does have substance, but no subsistence in itself. The much-used image of the relationship between the soul and the body of man can serve here. Of the body too, it must be said that it has substance but no subsistence. It's not a mere accident of the soul. This would be idealism. But is ontologically and substantially distinguished from it. At the same time, it cannot operate of itself but finds its operating principle in the spirit which uses it as an organ. All this may be transferred to the relation between the divine person and the human nature in the mediator. If the logos who makes use of the human nature existing in him as an organ, he does so not merely through indwelling, as for example the logos in the days of the covenant made use of creaturely form in order to reveal himself. The early fathers denied that the divine person was present in human nature like a captain in his ship. Such a local indwelling can be thought of only in material things and would not be applicable to the body of the mediator. It would lead to the Arian conception. Then he goes on to say this, Here for us lies the mystery of the doctrine of the God-man. We cannot explain how human understanding, human will, and human feeling were joined and united with the person of the Son of God. Now, what we have before us here, these three propositions that Van Til affirmed, the incarnation is not necessary apart from sin. It is not necessary to initiate or perfect a creator-creature relation. That the Son of God remains immutable in both creation and incarnation. And in the hypostatic union, the natures are not confounded or confused. This is the substance of orthodox, creedal, and reformed Christology. And what I want to leave you with here as we're thinking through Van Til's doctrine of the Incarnation is this. We are never to think of theology proper 
God's relation to creation through the lens of Christology. That is misguided. God doesn't assume a human nature. God doesn't generate created properties to himself as attributes in order to relate to creation. Instead, we must think of the incarnation through the lens of the creator-creature distinction. That the sovereign, living, immutable triune God relates without change to the creature so that the relation changes, the creature in the relation changes, and God remains living and immutable in that relation, so likewise in the incarnation. The relation changes, the assumed humanity changes, but the immutable and living Son of God does not change in relation to the, cre to the humanity He's assumed, but what? personalizes it and equips it to underwrite the steadfastness and immutability of the covenant of grace. And in so doing, in this personalizing union, in this inhypostatic conception of the incarnation, there is no confounding, no confusing of divine and human natures, which you get invariably if you try to retrofit a two-nature Christology, onto a two-nature theology proper. Van Til will have none of that, but will reverse and say we reason from the creator-creature distinction to the redeemer-redeemed distinction, and the logic of the incarnation follows the logic of the creator-creature relation, but adds to it this mysterious personalizing union between the divine person and the in, I-N, personal, assumed humanity. Everything depends on maintaining these foundational, Catholic, Reformed, and above all, biblical propositions regarding the immutable person of the incarnate Son of God.